Hi, my name's Grant Fishbook, and I am honored to be the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much for choosing to access this online content today. We really hope you'll enjoy this message. One of our values here at Christ the King is biblical face-to-face -face community. And so while we are so excited that you joined us today online, I really want to encourage you. Make sure that this is never a replacement for face-to-face -face biblical community. Your story matters, you matter, and we want to see you get connected in a local church. Now, if you're here in our area, we would love to have you join us at any one of our five campuses. But if you find yourself outside of the Bellingham area, we really want you to get connected into a local church. So we hope and pray that that happens for you very, very soon. Good morning, sleep-in service. It's good to see you. You guys are my people. Waking up at the crack of, dawn, uh, crack of noon, that's great. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. One of the teaching pastors. Been here since about 1999. That's a long, long time to be hanging in one place. That makes me a church dinosaur. And so uh, I'm glad to be able to have a conversation today. Several years ago, we asked a question. I wonder what would happen if we kind of flipped the script upside down. What if instead of doing a monologue, which is what preaching actually is, you know, I go up to my office, I pray to Jesus, Jesus tells me a topic, I come down and then I either yell or cry with you uh, for about 30 minutes. What if instead we flipped the script over and we just said, what if you got to ask the questions that are on your heart? What if we got to talk about what's going on in your life? And then we added another element. What if we did it with no prep? Like what if there was no, like I don't have the questions ahead of time. What if we just, it was like we were having conversation in a coffee shop and we did it the first time and it kind of blew up on us in a crazy cool sort of a way. We just got inundated with questions and so we're going to do that again. We do it about a couple times a year, about three, two or three times a year and so this is your opportunity to actually participate in a dialogue because we have a conviction around here that Christianity should be a dialogue, not just a monologue and we need to be able to have an interchange that's respectful and loving and fun and so we're actually going to uh, do that. So here's the phone number, 360 there was a phone number, 360, I'll see if I know it, 285-3560. There it is at the bottom, right? Okay. You can text the question in right now. Here's what I want to say about your questions. Uh, we've already had a lot of questions come in during the weekend. It's impossible for us to get to every single one of them, but I want you to know something. Just because we don't answer your question does not mean it's not important. 
In fact, it's really important. And I want you to take this as an encouragement that if we can't get to your question, that's why we do small groups and community around here because your question deserves to be answered. I just may not be able to do it quickly and comprehensively enough from the front. So if you're in a small group or you know somebody, you can actually go to them and say, here's my question. Let's try and find out an answer together. So that's really, really important. I also want you to know this. There's no way in 30 minutes we can be comprehensive when it comes to answering any of these questions. I know and acknowledge on the front end, we're going to be scratching the surface of a lot of different issues today. And, uh, and that's the best we can do in that amount of time. I also want to say this, just as we get ready to get started. Um, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm not even what I would consider myself to be a deep theologian. Uh, and I'm not a therapist. I'm a pastor. And so I'm going to answer my questions from that part of your questions from that perspective of kind of a pastoral way of looking at. If you are a psychologist or a therapist or a theologian and you can answer the question better than I can, awesome. Email me and I'll try to learn from you and we can take that next time around that we actually do this. Let me tell you how this works though because I think it's really, really cool. Uh, last night we had a question pop up at the Saturday service that said, I'm ready to be saved. And then they asked a question about baptism. So I answered the question about baptism, and then I said, if you're ready to get saved, I mean, you want to give your heart to Jesus today, I'll be standing right up here at the front afterwards. So we're having our prayer team up at the front, and a young lady, um, a mom with two kids, came up. Her name was Tina, and Tina said, I'm ready to get saved. I've been here for a couple weeks. I need Jesus in my life. And we prayed right over here, and her whole eternal destiny changed. So what I want you to be thinking about is this. We don't know. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We don't know all the things that are on the other side of the questions. And so we can be prayerful and loving as we're walking through these things. We're going to do the best we can. And uh, we got some questions lined up already. And so here we go. This is where my pulse rate goes up and yours might do too if you're a highly empathetic person. And we're going to find out whether Grant sinks or swims right now, live, in real time, in full public view. Yay. That's awesome. Okay, first question. Here it comes. You said no to an official pet blessing at CTK. <laughs> is that a... <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> okay, here's the question. You've said no to an official pet blessing at CTK. Is that a hard no? Are you still saying there's a chance? I'm asking for a friend. Um, there's no win uh, for this one. Okay, no, okay, all right, here we go. Um, we believe in the priesthood of all believers at Christ the King Community Church, which means because we are all priests in God's family, I will commission you and deputize all of you to go home, lay hands on your pet, and commit them to Christ, and to use them as a vehicle with which you can share Jesus to all of your neighbors by making sure that you always clean up after your dog. How's that for an answer? All right? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Last night, somebody asked the question whether or not I picked out my own clothes. Where does that stuff come from? So, you know, I picked this out all by myself. Okay, all right. So, some of the questions. Here we go. How does God feel about second marriages and blending families? Wow, let's get right into it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> here's what I believe um, to be true is 
we're all human beings. Last week, we learned a pretty tough lesson that we're all those people. We don't like to be those people, but we're all those people. We all have a story. And for many of us that are in this room right now, uh, you have a story whereby you went into a marriage or a relationship or a family thinking that it was, that that was actually God's will and how those pieces were going to be put back together again. Um, and, and you probably had really, really high expectations. And then somewhere along the line, maybe it was you, maybe it was your spouse, uh, but somebody proved their humanity and the relationship broke and crumbled. One of the things that I love about Christ the King Church is that we understand the mess of life, and that's the way mess is. And so I would answer this question by saying this. Uh, is there a question at all that God loves people that have walked through the pain of divorce or broken family? And the question is, absolutely, yes. God loves, loves that. Scripture does say that God hates divorce. And the reason he hates divorce is because what it does to people and families inside of that, Okay doesn't say anywhere in scripture God hates divorced people. It just says he hates divorce because he sees this ripping, this tearing. I mean, scripture says that a marriage is supposed to be a one flesh relationship. That's where you come and it's not two anymore. It's actually one. But when you tear one in half, it's painful. It hurts. There's pain there. Does God believe in, in second chances? Yeah, I believe that he does. And I would ask that, 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 you know, we always keep in mind that while somebody may have some relational pain, in, in, the question is really, have they done the due diligence that they need to do in order to, to work on their own heart and their own pieces as they go through it? Can they own what they need to own? Have they done the work that they need to in pursuing restoration and reconciliation with everything they possibly can, knowing that not every situation can be restored and reconciled? I deal with people in abusive situations all of the time, and I just understand that sometimes there are what I call a regrettable permission in Scripture. And I believe the Bible teaches that, that there is a regrettable permission when it comes to relationships, and that is in the areas of abuse, abandonment, and adultery. It's not that something wants to. And I also believe that, that God is a God of grace, and he can put pieces back together again, even when that's happened inside of a relationship. So I would answer this question by saying this. If you're getting married for the second time, do your homework. I mean, for the love of God, do this deep heart work so that you understand what you're getting yourself into so you don't repeat the mistakes of the past. I've just had the, I've just had the privilege of walking with a couple who just went through this very thing and listening to them talk about the lengths that they went to to make sure their hearts were ready, that they were reconciled to whatever level they could be with their exes so that they could come before God. Because when we come before God together and we make a covenant before God, that's a big deal. And God takes that very seriously. So to be able to come with clean hands, a clean conscience, an open heart. And then I think the blending of families can actually be an unbelievably beautiful thing. I will say this, it's challenging. Amen. I've never met a blended family that didn't say that is really, really, really hard work. And that's where you have an opportunity again to come to the foot of the cross together as a family and say, Jesus, we need you. We need you to put these pieces together because this is a dynamic that's very, very difficult. And so you got to be willing to do the hard work. So can God bless a second marriage? Absolutely, I believe that he can. Can God bless a blended family? Absolutely, I believe that he can. But I also believe the onus is on us to do the hard work before Christ so that our hearts are ready to do that. I think sometimes in our culture today, we're addicted to relationship. We're addicted. We actually think another human being can fulfill that hole in our soul that somehow you complete me. That's the biggest lie in the world. No human being can completely. And if you think that that's, that spot is reserved for Jesus. So if we focus on this relationship first, I promise you these relationships will go a whole lot better. 
So we need to stay humble. We need to stay open. But I believe God's heart is for all of us in those kinds of things as we pursue them. Okay? All right. Let's go on to the next one. Is there anything you believed in the past that you've subsequently determined you were wrong about? (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, You got a couple hours? Um, Boy, which one do I want to talk about? Um, So I grew up in a fairly conservative fundamental home. And because of that, there were certain things about God's family and the gifting that he gives individual people that, um, that, that, that I did not have a box for. Um, I'll give you an example. So the gift of tongues, which scripture speaks about specifically. I grew up in a church where that was for the happy people that went to Calvary Temple, okay? That wasn't for the frozen chosen that hung out with us. I mean, that's just how it worked, right? We were very, there was a decorum, there was a behavior that was for those people and we're over here and we got it and they're just like, "Mm, it's okay. Um, And then through a series of life moments, I can't even, I don't know how else to put them, a series of life moments, God came to me and said, excuse me, but your box is far too small when it comes to the king of the universe and how I decide I'm gonna operate with my family. And so I had to go back and do a thorough searching of the scripture to find out my conviction. And you know what, this is what I love about this church, you're welcome to your conviction. And we may even differ in conviction, but that does not mean we need to break fellowship with each other. We can have a different conviction, but for me, so I, I grew up believing that, that, that tongues and prophecy and those kinds of gifts had ceased and they'd stopped and they were no longer active in the church today. And then God kicked the side out of my box and I had to acknowledge the fact that I actually see those, I believe all of the gifts are in active use in the church today. And we think it's beautiful and wonderful when we use the gifts in the proper place with the proper heart not to put ourselves on display, but to put the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus on display so we can see that. There's a lot of things that I've had to unlearn in my own understanding. And believe me, I, I have nothing but unbelievable respect for my dispensational brothers and sisters who believe we no longer live in an apostolic age, so we don't even need those gifts anymore. I have room for their opinion. I'm just like, okay. I also have unbelievable respect and love for, for my little C charismatic brothers and sisters who are over here on this side of the whole thing, which is just like, woohoo, let's go. I mean, <laughs> what I know is this, Jesus prayed that we would be one and that we would focus on major issues. Here are my major issues. Jesus, Bible, church, and unity. Those are my big rocks. I'll put those in a closed fist and I'll go to war with anybody who wants to take on that. The authority of scripture is a non-negotiable for us. The place of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the beauty of the Trinity, the mystery of that. I will go to war with that kind of stuff. There's a whole bunch of thing over here in an open hand. We can have a really cool conversation about that. We can play Christian Jeopardy if you want to. I mean, that's really, really cool. But I do understand this. God said that he loved it when we would dwell together in unity. So even the things that we're learning about that are new and fresh, we need to hold that with a level of humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I don't need Jesus opposing me. I'm gonna lose that fight every single time. 
And I could give you a thousand, it feels like, I think I could, maybe even if I wrote long enough, I could come up with a whole pile of things that I've had to change my mind or open my heart about. The key is whether or not they're still uh, observing the authority of Scripture, because if that ever changes, then I think we're all kind of lost. Okay? Great question. That's a good one. I like it. Okay, next one. Can a person be both Christian and politically liberal? Oh, wow, really? Okay. The people in the booth are fired. Um, So here's what I'm going to say. So a couple of years ago, we actually did a series called Taboo, and I preached about politics. And I'm going to go back to that because I think this is important. Um, I am so sick and tired of arguments about politics where people actually elevate the political view of themselves above their Christianity. And I watch people say they're followers of Christ and then treat other brothers and sisters who may disagree with them with absolute contempt and it's disgusting to me. I'm just like, really? What happened to the fruit of the Spirit? in your conversation with people who may disagree with you on a political view? Where is your love, joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your gentleness, your faithfulness? Where's your self-control? Fruit of the Spirit. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. So I'm going to go back to that message, and I'm going to say this. Um, If any of our political views elevates themselves above the commands of Scripture, you're wrong, and you're going in the wrong direction, okay? And this is my challenge to you. Before you know what your public platform is, have you searched this? My Bible says, choose life. And say that, God did. So that means, as a believer in Christ, I have no other option than to align myself with the fact that God loves life. Now, that works itself out in lots of different ways. And we may have differing views on on where you should put that line, but what I know is this. If the Christians in the room would educate themselves with God's platform first, it makes all of the other conversations very different. Because then I can actually have self-control. I mean, can I just be so bold to say, for some of you, I watch you on Facebook. Wow. Wow. And I always ask myself the same question. Where's Jesus in that? Where's Jesus in that conversation? So I'm going to tell you something because I think this is important. I hate to freak you out, but Jesus was neither Republican nor Democrat. And let me tell you how I know that. When it comes to grace and the way God loves messy people, he was more liberal than the greatest liberal that's ever lived because he pours out grace and liberality in a way that should blow our mind. When it comes to justice, the king of the universe is more conservative because he withheld justice that should have been imputed against my soul and took it on his own spotless son so that I could experience 
grace. Jesus defies both traditional definitions, and I think we would do really, really well um, acknowledging that truth. So you're welcome to hold your political opinion. That's great. But I would say this. If any of your political opinions supersede the opinion of Jesus, you're going the wrong direction. People ask me every year. I mean, I know. Here comes 2020, right? And I'm like, oh, gee. Here we go again every four years. I've told this story here before. Um, This is when uh, John Kerry and George Bush were both running for president. I preached a message about grace. Grace. And I walked out into the commons and somebody walked up to me and he goes, I am never coming back to this church ever, ever again. I can smell George Bush all over you. (laughs) That's just weird. I mean, No word of a lie. Not two minutes later, I walked up and another person said, I am never coming to Christ the King again. The fact that you would sanction everything that John Kerry stands for is an abomination. I'm like, wow. So if you're a follower of Jesus, act like it, period, especially in 2020. Amen? Okay. Next question. Next question. Do you help with the homeless? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, Yeah. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. We do continuously in a lot of different ways. Um, Some of the beautiful ways that we do that is through our support of um, our food share farm and food banks because we help feed people. We take the word of James very seriously that it's not good for Christians to say be warm and well fed and then not actually feed them. So last year, I don't know if you saw it out there, we gave away 75,000 pounds of fresh produce that didn't come in a can. Um, So we do that as well. I want you to know, um, if you ever come to the 930 service, which you guys never will because you're not even breathing at that point, but (laughs) you came to the 930 service, we do our best to be very, very warm and welcoming to a group of people that live in these trees right back here behind. And we know it's cold outside and we've got hot coffee and so we do our best I can to love and to encourage them because the Bible says in many ways we are entertaining angels unaware and we have no idea. And how we treat the least of these is how we treat Jesus. So we need to be able to do that. Um, uh, in the recent cold weather spell, so we, we are connected to a series of organizations that in tears based on need respond in moments when it's cold and it's snowy and all the rest of that. And so we were on alert. They didn't need our Norway Hall facility, but we were on alert with Francis Place, the Lighthouse Mission. We worked together with those organizations um, because we want to walk alongside and be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So we do everything I, we can in those particular in those particular areas to be available. And should our facilities be needed, they would be made available instantaneously. Praise God. Um, we may not have had enough beds this past time, but, but we never got the final phone call. We were ready to go in lots of different places. We had staff members who had volunteered to be there all night because we actually have to have that according to our insurance policies. And so do we work with the homeless? Yeah, because, um, because all people matter to God. And Jesus said, uh, the son of man does not even have a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes. He said, I don't even have one of that. And I think we need to remember that, which is interesting when it comes to the prosperity gospel, because I don't know how you reconcile being rich um, and the fact that Jesus was an itinerant homeless Jewish rabbi. 
And somehow you got to put those two things together. And I like the fact that Jesus makes me squirm with that kind of stuff. That's fantastic and awesome. So do you help with the homeless? Absolutely. As much as we possibly can. So, and to those of you that are here that actually volunteer in those areas, um, you've worked really hard the last couple of weeks and we appreciate all the sacrifice that you've made, whether you're volunteering with the Lighthouse Mission, Agape House, Francis Place, or anything else, or one of our own ministries, we thank you for your sacrifice. Thanks for loving Jesus in a really, really powerful way. I constantly feel like I'm not enough. Boy, welcome to the club. Not enough for God, my husband, lots of things. Constantly compare myself to others and feel like it's tearing me up. It's affecting my marriage. What can I do and how do I get help? You know, I, I, get, I get that. I understand. I think there's a feeling of inadequacy that floods all of our souls from time to time. And we feel like because of maybe something that we did or something we're not doing, that we don't quite make this, this mark. And because of that, uh, everything is falling apart around us. Um, first of all, wh- whoever you are, thank you for your courage. Thank you for speaking on behalf of a whole bunch of other people in the room because you're not alone in this. What I want you to know is this. Um, when you're constantly comparing yourself to others, you're gonna lose every single time. And God would never have us do that compare and contrast because every time we do the compare and contrast, we end up looking at the worst part of ourselves instead of who Jesus says that we are. So let me tell you a few things that Jesus is thinking about you right now because I don't think anybody else's opinion actually matters. Okay? The book of Psalms, Jesus said that you are, and by say, when I say Jesus, you know that I mean God, the Father, the Spirit, all three together in one. God says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't think God makes mistakes. God says that he has equipped you to do every good work. It's been prepared in advance for you to do. You can't ever measure up. That's why you don't have to. God is your all-sufficiency. God is your identity. God is your hope. God said that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. So one of the hardest things to do is to look in the mirror and not see who the enemy condemns me to be, but to look in the mirror and to actually see who God sees. So um, one of my new morning rituals, I love how God loves, does this stuff live and in real time. I drive to work because I think like everybody else in the room, I, I, I struggle with feelings of inadequacy all the time. I mean, who in the world am I to sit up in front of you and answer questions? So when I'm driving to work. I did it this morning on my way in. And I had to make some declarations. Do they feel true? No. Are they true? According to the Bible, they are. And I said out loud, because I want the enemy to hear me, I said, God has given me an ability to answer questions and I'm going to be faithful. God has given me a heart for broken people that lines up with his and I'm gonna rely on that. God has empowered me to speak on his behalf. And even when I don't feel like it, it's still been laid out in front and I'm gonna use this opportunity to the best of my ability. And sometimes we actually have to rewire our brain and our identity to believe that even though the Bible identifies 
all of us as sinners. He also has another name for those people who have a personal relationship with Jesus. He calls you saints. You're like, that makes me uncomfortable. Yep. It does. And so I would say that in answering this question, you have to stop comparing because Jesus isn't comparing you to anybody else. Jesus just looks at you and says, that's my girl. That's my daughter. Worthy of honor and respect. She's a leader. She's going to change her world today. She's the one that I called out of darkness. I loved her so much. I know her first, last, and middle name. I can count the, ca- the hairs on her head. I know her that intimately. That's who my girl is. Amen. So I would say this. Stopping the comparison thing is a challenge, but what you do is align yourself with who God says that you are. And you have to walk through that. My Bible says that I have a new spiritual identity in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. We have to believe that to be true, even though our feelings may tell us that we're broken. Like I said in the series, isn't it cool that God chooses to give value to those things that have been repaired, not with glue and not with gold, but with God? Um, One of the steps in 12 Steps actually works intensely in this area. It's that fearless moral inventory where we've got to lay our stuff out and then we lay it in front of God and God turns around and goes, I know, I know, and I'm still crazy about you. I proved it on a cross. Um, We would love to help. And so if you're in the room, and I'm assuming that you are, We would love an opportunity to pray with you and talk with you. We have pastors who would love to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you because what I'm telling you is this, the lie that you don't measure up is exactly that, it's a lie. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, you more than measure up. So to my my sweet saint sister, don't believe the lie, believe the truth that God is who he says you are. Okay, awesome, all right, I'm good. Grant, come on, do you really not know the questions prior to the service? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know. We don't prep them on, on purpose because I think that would be a setup. I mean, it, that would be, wouldn't this be weird if I said, hey, let's go for coffee sometime. And by the way, I'm going to send you my talking points ahead of time. And if you could submit your questions so that we could have, that would just be weird, right? I mean, this is supposed to be a family. So as God is my witness, I have no idea what the questions are before they pop up on the screen. So there you go. Believe me or not, that's the truth. Um, and by the way, uh, in the back right now, Randy Borland, uh, Brian Barons, Melanie Kemp, and I believe Jessica Pappen are the four that are back there um, screening and trying to retype some of the questions because some of you are challenged when it comes to grammar. I'm just saying, I'm just like, what does that mean? I don't know. Okay. I'm mad at God for taking away someone from the earth. I want a relationship, but I still feel so angry after a year. What should I do? Um, wow, this one's raw. So just at the end of the service, I, after the 9.30, I prayed with a young lady over here. Um, our fiance, Chris, was the young man who passed away in the pool at the rec center. 
just about three weeks ago. And we have so many people in our church that are hurting because of loss. So um, I don't want to answer this one in a flippant way. The last thing you need is a bumper sticker. Um, I think it's okay to be angry. The Bible says we see through a glass, it's dark. We can't see all the truth. It's hard. And, and I would say this, um, Jesus screamed to his father, why have you forsaken me? He didn't hold anything back. He was honest and raw and truthful. My Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I think it's okay to be angry. In fact, I would say this. I, I wonder out loud whether or not your anger is actually a very important part of your grief process. Where you have to release some of that anger because you're angry over the fact that, that maybe God didn't answer a prayer that you wanted him to answer or that God wanted you to share or that God wanted to, or you wanted God to share with this person a little bit longer. I don't even know what the issues are there. But I would say this. Your anger, at some level, will turn into bitterness until you make a conscious decision to cross a line of trust. Okay? I'd like to ask a question with as much respect as I possibly can, knowing that I don't know all of the situation, but I would say this. What if God allowing that person to go home was not punishment for you. What if it was protection for them? Because maybe you don't know the whole story. I think there are times when things happen and I, it feels to me like God's punishing me instead of, I wonder how many opportunities I'm gonna have in, in heaven to go over when I'm gonna look at it and go, oh, that's what you were doing. You weren't punishing me, you were protecting them. And I know it's painful because the reality is this, you have a huge hole in your heart and you gotta go through all the first, the first Christmas and the first Thanksgiving and, and that just rips it open. Laurel and I, we had in our first couple of years of marriage, we had 10 immediate family members diagnosed with cancer. We lost six and it hurt, it still hurts. Laurel was going through some beautiful memories the other day and it's still, it's just right there, right underneath of the surface. And so I would say this, uh, God can handle your anger. Ask the hard questions, he can take them. Be open to a different perspective, which is maybe it wasn't punishment, maybe it was protection. And at some line, you're gonna have to cross a line of understanding, I'm either gonna go through this grief with Jesus or without him. Go with him. The Bible says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So take God up in his offer to walk in the valley of grief with you. I think you will find over time that the anger subsides, that the pain is never gonna go away. That this, this whole line that, that time heals all wounds, that's just not true. It just hurts and it will hurt because you really love that person but to be able to entrust them into God's care. That's what I just finished. We just, the prayer time that Kara and I had over here today, we just, we said we had to acknowledge that there was no safer place for Chris to be than in the hand of Almighty God. 
and then we don't understand and it hurts really bad and that means the tears are okay, but we don't want to walk alone. So you've got to channel and decide what you're going to do with your anger. I would encourage you to hand that over too. Yeah, okay? All right. Whew, that's heavy. What changes do you envision need to be made for the people of CTK to be more effectively influence our community? That's a good answer. I'm going to go with that one. Um, you know, I, I really believe this. I think, I think we've lost our ability as a Christian community to have a meaningful dialogue with people that don't agree with us. And I think God's calling us back to be able to engage in meaningful dialogue so that we can have conversation over, over things that we may not agree with at all. And this is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. I mean, I, I, I struggle to understand how somebody can come and say, I'm just being passionate about it. No, you're angry. And you're saying you're representing Jesus, but the fruit of the Spirit is gone. Like, it's just not even in the room anymore. Love, joy, peace, patience. That left a long time ago. And I can tell because there's a vein popping out on the side of your head and you're red as a beet. Like, you look like a tomato. Like, she's like, I'm not angry. Like, okay. Um, so I really believe this is going to be a season coming up in front of us where, there, let's, let's be honest, there's a ton of skepticism about the faith that we hold to. I mean, you open up the, telev- you open up the newspaper, open up the television, that's good. Um, open up the newspaper <laughs> or you read online and what you just see is scandal, 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 scandal. And to be able to hold our biblical conviction alongside of a tension of people just going, I just don't understand. Like, you guys don't appear to be any different than the rest of the world. Uh, But to be able to engage in a conversation that keeps Jesus in the center of the room. I mean, I, I am so honored when I get invited to sit at tables with people who think I'm an idiot because I believe in Jesus Christ. And I could go in there with an agenda. I'm going to straighten these people out. I got verses. Here we go, right? Here's my sword. I'm going to stick you with it. I mean, that's how it works, right? But to be able to come in and say, um, I believe that the words on these pages and the relationship that it represents are the only answer for humanity's pain. And on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Everything else is sinking sand. So I will hold my conviction with both grace and truth. I will have conversations. But I believe as a church, we're going to need to get way, way, way better at having conversations and not lose our temper. Because we lose credibility the second we lose it. And can we be honest? As the body of Christ, we're more known for our mouth than anything else. What if our church could be a place where we were more known for our heart, our hands, and our feet? And what if we served our way into a position of credibility with people so that they would come and say, I don't agree with you, but I want to know what in the world is up with you people? Why do you keep showing up and staining fences at Engedi Refuge? Why are you volunteering in the kitchen at Lighthouse Mission? Why why are you giving out hot coffee on street corners? I mean, I just don't understand you people at all to have the opportunity to say, because that's what Jesus would do. I think that would be beautiful. So I think we need to do that. Okay, last question. It's almost, I got one minute. Last question. 
What do you tell unbelievers when they ask why a loving God won't let good people into heaven? My Bible says this, it is not God's will that any should perish. That's the heart of God. God's not trying to keep anybody out of heaven. God wants everybody in heaven. He says it is his will that every single person should be saved. But I also believe this, um, good person in comparison to who? My Bible offends the world when it says there's no one righteous, not even one. That includes this guy with a microphone strapped to his head. There's no one righteous, not even one, which means this, our good isn't good enough. That's hard. But here's the good news. The good of Jesus was good enough. He got over the bar. And he says, here's the point. You can't get over the bar. You need help. And Jesus said, I'll help you. Everything that I have done for you, I will give to you. I will, I will put it on your account so it wipes your account clean. I will wash you as white as snow. And then you will be good enough. So the opportunity for us is understanding this. It's not ever that God's trying to keep good people out of heaven. He just wants all of those people to experience his goodness and his grace. God doesn't assign people to hell. People choose it for themselves. And that's difficult truth, but it's true. Our job is to help them understand the loving heart of God so that one day they will have an opportunity to come and see him face to face. This one thing I know, my Bible tells me that, um, that we're either gonna meet God in his grace or in his justice. For the love of God, choose to meet him in his grace. That's what Jesus wants more than anything. Amen. All right, we are out of time. I'm sure we had lots more questions. 11.15, you did not let me down. Thank you. And I'm gonna go and take a nap after <laughs> and go to IHOP, okay? Let's pray quick. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to have a conversation this morning with my church family. Lord, thank you so much. I pray that they would go from here knowing that they are loved by Jesus, loved by me and loved by their community of faith right here. Lord, may we go and make a difference in our world today. We give you all the praise and glory. May your name be worshiped in Whatcom County this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go. First question, let's throw it up there, see what we got. Um, before we get to that, let me share one other thing. <laughs> I've had some coffee. So my favorite moment from last night on Saturday, Saturday night, question pops up and says, I'm ready to be saved. And then asked a question about baptism, which is what just triggered this. Um, that's one of the reasons why we do this. Because after the service last night, I said, hey, if you're ready to get saved, like you want to give your heart to Jesus tonight, I'll meet you right down here afterwards. And sure enough, here comes this wonderful lady. Her name's Tina. She gave her heart to Christ last night. She met two new people and then got invited to a small group on the same evening, just like bam, 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 bam. God was good and showed up. So we never know what's going on with the people that are behind the questions. So thank you for taking the risk and doing that. And we'll see what happens this morning. Okay, now, here we go. If I was baptized as a baby, is it okay to be baptized a second time? 
I would say the answer to that question is yes. Um, as a baby, you probably didn't have a lot of choice when it came to the decision that was made. A decision was made for you, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I honor parents who were doing, whether they understood covenant theology, whether they understood the House of Cornelius passages or not, I think they were unbelievably well-intended in trying to make sure that you had an opportunity to experience that, okay? And so nothing against parents who have done that. But I would also say this, in the, in, in the baptism narratives of Scripture, I keep coming back to the same fact that it is a person making their own decision independent of anyone else and going public in their declaration of faith. And so I would say if you were baptized as an infant and you feel like you need to step across the line and go public of your own volition with your own mind, then that's absolutely good. Now, if you have peace in your heart that your infant baptism represented everything you believe in your faith, I think the most important thing is this. You have to be responsive to what the Holy Spirit of God is telling you. And if you're asking this question, I would say the Holy Spirit of God is probably prompting something inside of you and wanting you to make a decision. So if you're asking the question, I think you've already kind of played that out. And so I would encourage you to be highly obedient to what God tells you. We've had the privilege over the years of baptizing some people who were in their 80s, who spent their lifetime in church and never crossed the line of faith publicly. And it was so unbelievably beautiful to watch them take that step. The key is this, baptism is a step of obedience. It's a public declaration. And if you've never crossed that line and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you need to cross that line. You need to go public. I don't care how long you've been around or what other people may think of you or the fact that you don't want to get your hair wet. I mean, seriously, I've heard every excuse in the book. This is a moment of obedience where God says, I want you to cross that line. I mean, Jesus said, I was not ashamed of you. I don't want you to be ashamed of me. And so if this is your moment and you're saying, I definitively want to go public, that's a great thing. Whether you've been baptized as an infant or not, this is your opportunity to own it, make it your own, step across the line. And if you ever want to do that, I mean, we will crawl in that tank and fill that thing every week if we need to. I just think that's beautiful. Okay. All right. Great question. Good start. Second question. I never tithe 10% and feel bad about it. But if I did tithe, I wouldn't have enough money to live. What's your take on this? Great question. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, we're actually going to do a series coming up here, just a little a quick. It's actually like two to three, kind of like two and a half weeks. Um, it's been several years since we've done a financial series in any way, shape, or form. I get more questions about finances probably than I do any other topic other than the Bible itself, okay? And so we're going to talk about that because I think we owe it to you to talk about this because it's a big deal all the way across. It's kind of the last thing, that's the last frontier that people want to cross um, in order to be able to, 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 to truly do and to be obedient what God has called us to do. So first of all, I would say this. Um, you have to live as a person first, okay? God wants you to live. But I would also say this, there's a step of trust that comes in, that steps in when you read scripture and scripture says, God, God says this, um, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And that is, that's what 10% means. Okay. It's as simple as that. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see, God actually says, test me in this. My question to you would be this. Have you actually 
tested God in faith to see whether or not he will not look after you if you do it his way. So let me tell you the story of a, of a, of a family that goes to this church right now. They said exactly the same thing. Grant, we can't afford to. My response was, I'm not sure you can afford not to. Because what you're really doing is in saying we can't, you're not giving any room at all. You're going like, no, we can't. We've got to hold on to this. And, and, and God's a gentleman. He's not gonna, he can't stick, he's not going to stick something in there if your hand is closed. So there was a church for our family from our church who actually, we sat down and they, they did Financial Peace University and they started making strategic sacrifices. I think 2 Corinthians 8 talks about um, a New Testament plan, which is you, you purpose in your heart ahead of time what you can do every single week in order to put God first. And so you operate off of that. So um, if 10% is not where you can start, how about trusting God with two? And then trusting God with three and then trusting God with four. Here's what I know for sure. Um, God's 10 is still bigger than your 90. Because my Bible says, the earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So it's not yours anyway. It's not mine anyway. We're going to cover some of this stuff. I actually like talking about finances because it just, it's just fun, all right, to unpack the fact that this is all belongs to God. But this family started making sacrifices. They started cutting back on their coffee budget. I'm amazed how much we spend. I mean, you can drop six bucks on a coffee like this and we don't even think about it, right? That's an essential. <laughs> I need that to get through my workday. That's like one of the five major food groups, right? Caffeine, I gotta have that. They started making those kinds of decisions. They cut their coffee budget in half. They sold some stuff. And they tested God. They tested him. And their budget was like this. I mean, we're talking a thread. And they discovered something. God keeps his promise. Every single time. I have learned this to be true. You can't outgive God. Give it your best shot. I'm still learning on this one. My wife is a joyful giver. She, she just gets stoked every time she gets an opportunity. I'm not. I'm still a grumpy giver. I'm just, I'm working on it as best I possibly can. But you learn something. You can't outgive God. You learn that, that, that his 10 is bigger than your 90. And the question is really this. Can you trust him? Start small. I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Start small and see whether or not God will not show up for you. God doesn't want us to be ashamed. He wants us to be obedient. So we start making little small incremental sacrifices. We started doing this. This family from our church started doing this. And this snowball effect begins to happen where you see God show up one week and then he shows up again and then he shows up again and then he shows up again and he shows up again and again and again and again and again. It's an incredible thing. The question is really, are you willing to trust? So I would say this, when we give to God first, that's an active act of trust. And that's where it starts for all of us. It doesn't matter if it's a little or a lot. Here's also what I think is important. The Bible tells this beautiful story of Jesus standing in the temple court. And I've had the, I've had the privilege of standing on those steps. And there's a group of people that are giving out of the excess and the abundance that they have. And Jesus doesn't even pay attention to them. He pays attention to this little lady who comes with two copper coins, which basically were worthless. Two pennies. But out of her need, 
She trusted God, drops these two coins in, and Jesus says, that's what I'm looking for right there. You see her? You see her? It's not the amount of the gift, it's the amount of the sacrifice that God notices. So I would encourage you to start very, very small. Don't let the devil shame you. Trust God and see whether or not he doesn't show up and blow your mind. You may have to make some sacrifices, but I, I have found those sacrifices are minute in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus made for me on the cross. So start small and grow from there. That's a challenge, I think, for all of us to have. We've been blessed to be a blessing, so let's, let's bless, okay? All right, no, it's not comprehensive. I'll come back to it in a couple weeks. Okay, all right, next question. We had an interruption during the service a few weeks back. Yes, we did. Um, were you afraid? Was I afraid? Um, I was nervous because that's not normal, right? Um, if you weren't here, let me just bring you up to speed. So I was about 10 minutes into the message. Uh, two gentlemen walked in from the church, or walked in from the back. They had done this before. We actually found out they interrupted multiple churches during the day. Um, and so they came in, they made it look like they were looking for seats, so nobody really paid them that much attention until they got right up here to the front. One guy came um, and asked me a question whether or not, we, whether or not I knew um, Yahshua, and I said, well, it's actually a Yeshua, but I wasn't going to correct his pronunciation at the time. Um, <laughs> And then the other guy wanted to give a lecture, and what we saw was our safety team responded immediately, very, very quickly, and it felt like 10 minutes, but it was about less than 10 seconds if you watch the video how quickly things were taken care of. Um, was I afraid? No, I was nervous. Here's why I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid because there's someone even stronger than our safety team watching over this family. And he watches over his sheep, and he's a good shepherd. And he has a staff and a rod, and he will use them to protect his church family. So was I nervous? Uh, was I afraid? No, but I was nervous. I was nervous for everybody because I didn't want to lose a moment. Um, I think I said something wrong this past week, and I so appreciate my wife pointing it out. Um, I said, you know... Uh, <laughs> Next question. Um, <laughs> but Laurel says, she said, Granny, in your midweek connection, you said, you know, we stopped and then we invited God back into the center of the room. She goes, he never left the center of the room. That's my girl right there. She's a theologian, okay? Um, God never leaves us. He doesn't check in and check out in moments like that. No, he's right here. In fact, if you asked me for a location, I would say God was standing right here watching you protecting us, making sure that everything was moving in the right direction. And so I so appreciated the way our safety team um, acted. I so appreciated how you responded because we did take a moment and pray and we just kind of refocused and centered ourselves. I know it's disconcerting. And then at the end of the service, we had an opportunity to talk about who the safety folks are and you uh, can't see them right now because they're tucked back over there. Um, and they're watching from the back, from the sides, and they're just always here. And so was it a moment of fear? No, it was a moment of nervousness, and I had to collect myself again because that's not what we're expecting. Um, uh, we don't like it when those things happen, but when they do, we have to trust God and just say, okay, Lord, another opportunity to trust you. And uh, um, I was just really proud of the way everybody responded in that moment. It made me just, it made my heart, it made my heart swell with pride over the fact that we're gonna, we're gonna talk and pray. There was also a couple of, of my prayer warriors who were in the room um, 
who were standing up, I mean, and they were speaking in tongues and they were talking in the name of Jesus. I'm just thinking, you just so don't want to mess with praying grandmas in this church. Like You just do not want to do that. They will call down heaven on you and it will be awesome. And so the whole response, honestly, I wish, I hope it never happens again, but if it does, I was just really, really appreciative of the way everybody responded. So thank you. And everybody that sent an email checking in on me afterwards, I appreciate that too because it is a little disconcerting. And there was another service to do after that. And hopefully 11.15 didn't have a clue as to what happened here at the 9.30. So, okay, awesome. That's good. Another question. Let's see, 10, okay, time going along here. Pornography wrecked my life. I'm divorced now, and a big reason for that was my addiction. A lot of time has passed. I work aggressively on that addiction to fight for purity and victory. Yes. First of all, I'm proud of you. God bless you for fighting that fight. Not many people have the courage to take the fight and go public. And you're not alone. Okay, you're not alone. That's tough. Can you give us all some encouragement in this fight? Absolutely. I deal with, with, I deal with men who are battling this addiction constantly. Um, it's not just a male issue, just so you know. It's a female issue as well. Um, so let's not fool ourselves into thinking it's just a guy thing. It's not. It's prolific. For the first time in our history, you don't have to go looking for sexually explicit material. It'll come looking for you. Anybody else notice that? It'll knock on your door every time you open your computer. There's an opportunity. We're all, we're all one click away from making the wrong decision when it comes to the beauty of sexual intimacy and how God has created in his desire a man and a woman in a monogamous relationship for a lifetime. I just think that's absolutely beautiful. Um, I love this. A lot of time has passed because that's important. When you're victorious day after day after day after day, you put enough of those days together, you've got a month, enough months together, you've got a year, enough years together, you've got a decade. And it's a moment-by-moment -moment decision. But the fact that you're pressing into it on a daily basis is huge. That's absolutely huge. I've worked aggressively on that addiction to fight for purity and for, for victory. The Bible says that we have to take every single thought captive. And when that thought machine, that slideshow starts pouring into our head, we have to stop. Yes. We have to stop. We have to take that thought captive. And then we've got to bring it under the identity of who Jesus says we are. So let me talk to the men in the room for a second. You are not a victim of your sex drive. Yeah. Okay? You're not a victim of a, your sex drive. That was put in you by God to use in a God-honoring way in the right direction. And God wants you to have a pure mind directed inside of a marriage relationship. And does that make it difficult for people that are outside of a marriage relationship? Yeah, it does. Some of my single brothers that are here that are fighting this battle, you're my heroes because you're scrapping for everything that you're worth to stay pure before God. I think that's important. And sometimes we've got to go to extreme measures to have an extreme fight. If you were here um, several weeks ago, I brought, um, I brought a mouse, a computer mouse that had been cut off with a set of, of, of cable clippers. Some of us have to go to those kinds of extreme lengths. That mouse is what's, it's not the cause, but that's what I'm using to get to this material. So a friend of mine had cut it off and left it for me to let me know. I have a collection of power cords in my office 
from guys who've said, I cannot have a computer in my house. I can't. I've proven that I'm too weak to have it there. So I unplugged it. And this is the degree to which I am pursuing purity before Jesus. And I'm so honored to be able to receive those trophies of passion and purity in the right direction. I also want you to know this. We have a class called Standing Firm. Oh, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. They are some of the bravest individuals I've ever met because they have not only, st- they've not only taken the fight to the enemy, but they're public about it and they're not ashamed to say, this is where I have been, but praise God, this is not where I've stayed. They took very seriously our statement. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And so this group of, of men meet together and they do war with each other. They link arms and they are re programming their mind to think about whatever is pure and whatever is right and whatever is noble and whatever is good. They are disciplining their minds to look at God's daughters as God's daughters. They want to esteem their sisters in Christ. And so I would say the encouragement is this. This is a battle that the enemy wants you to think you can't win, and that's a lie. You can win the battle for purity. It is possible to live in this culture without having to access that kind of material. It is possible for us as a church to do battle. How do you do battle? You put on the armor of God and you go to war every single day. And you fight under the banner of Jesus' name and under the authority of his name. You have to get up in the morning sometimes and have a William Wallace kind of moment. What are you doing, William? I'm going to go pick a fight. Watch Braveheart. It's fantastic, okay? (laughs) But sometimes we have to fight and we have to fight hard. And I'm telling you, this fight can be won. Jesus already won that victory. When you partner with him, that victory becomes yours. And you don't need to sacrifice your heart, your mind, or your sexuality to pornography. Instead, you can bring that to the foot of the cross and have full and absolute victory. Whether you're single or married, male or female, you can have victory because Jesus already won. I could preach that right now. I am so holding back. Okay, anyway, so God bless you for asking this question. This is a real, this is a real issue in our world today, that's for sure. Okay, next question. Is it wrong to be friends with someone who's homosexual or transgender? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I love the heart of Jesus. Laurel and I are reading a book together right now called Beautiful Outlaw. And it's how Jesus, Jesus broke rules all over the place and made religious people squirm. It's, just, it's really fun. Actually, I, I'm just so enjoying this book. Um, but it talks about how in relationships where culture would try to create a division, Jesus pressed in got close enough to a person's heart for the reason of being able to share both grace and truth. And I think that should be the desire of all of our friendships all of the time, that we press in. And, and so for us, you know, as we, look at, as we look at this, when it comes to that type of relationship, we want to be like Jesus in that. And I have found, I found this. So, um, for whatever reason, I've been welcomed into different pockets of the gay community here in Bellingham. And they know that I don't, they know that I don't agree with them. But they appreciate my conviction 
because I don't use my conviction as a hammer to try and hit somebody. I use my conviction as a way of connecting to Jesus in the deepest way that I can to try and love and respect somebody, but also to hold to my conviction and share truth. Okay, I can't make the Bible not say what it says. And they may disagree with me passionately, but I want to keep the relationship there because if I sacrifice the relationship, I also lose the ability to speak truth. And here's what I know. I can't change anyone's heart about any issue at all, but the Holy Spirit of God can. So my job is to love, respect, speak truth, and stay in the relationship even if they want to pull away and run the opposite direction. Because I know something about Jesus. He pursues people. He pursues hurting people. He pursues people who may not even think they're hurting. He still pursues them with everything in him because there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, and Jesus doesn't want any of us to die. And so he pursues us with love and hope. So I would encourage you to be the kind of person that can connect to anybody while holding to grace in your responses, but truthful conviction. Because I also know this. I know that my, um, I know that my cultural views are not well accepted sometimes because the Bible's not really popular in the world. Has anybody else noticed that, right? The Bible's not really popular. But I have a decision to make. I'm not going to stand before another person when I get to heaven. I'm going to stand in front of Jesus today. You've heard me say this before, and I hope you hear it because I really, really mean it. I would rather be a fool in the eyes of an entire culture than a fool in the eyes of God. So I will hold to my conviction. I will love as best I can and respect. I'll speak truth when given an opportunity, but I'm always going to do it with gentleness and love because that's how I believe you reach Someone. I think we have way more movement that happens with conversation than condemnation. I've never seen condemnation ever work anywhere. So I would encourage you to press in, hold to your convictions, be truthful, be honest, and love people enough to tell them the truth in the right kind of way, with the right kind of tone. Okay? Awesome. Next question. I don't know how to have a quiet time with the Lord. Where should I start? Oh, I love these kinds of questions. This is great. Um, so, uh, one of my favorite books uh, by Gary Thomas. Gary's going to be here in March doing a Cherish conference, but Gary wrote a book called Sacred Pathways. And Gary uh, helped blow my mind years ago when it came to understanding that everyone has a different rhythm, a different feel when it comes to establishing a quiet time. Not everybody can go to a room, sit with their Bible open on their lap, pray for 12 minutes read for 12 minutes. I mean, and I, I think for some of us, that's a great formula the way that it works. And so I would encourage you, if you're going to start a quiet time, is this, first of all, figure out what your pathway is. For me, my best quiet times are with my, are with my Nikes on, out running on the back roads of Whatcom County. I don't know why, but Jesus talks to me when I run. My quiet times often look like this. I spent two and a half miles whining, complaining, and telling God how he should run the world. And then I have two and a half miles of silence or more, depending on how far I'm going, when God has a conversation with me about how he's got everything under control and I need to trust him. That's not a substitute for my Bible time because I think there is a time uh, when you do need to just open the Word of God. It's the primary way in which He communicates to us. It's not the only way, but it's the primary way that He communicates to us, and there's no substitute 
for being in the Word. Somebody's like, but Grant, I don't read, okay? Audible books, awesome, right? Have the Word spoken to you so that it's ingrained. Listen to it in your car. Do it as a time, but have a focused, concentric time when you actually focus on God's relationship with you and your relationship with God. So I would encourage you to start this way. Figure out what your pathway is. For some of you, your pathway is worship music. That's how you connect to God. That's a great way to start a quiet time. Worship, praise, sing, listen. Just let your heart overflow. Then a time of scripture, which is good. However you need to get it into your body, get it into your body. For some people, it's a single verse. And you meditate on that. The Bible says to meditate on his law day and night. So you take that little bite-sized piece. For some people, it's Bible through. Uh, you're going to read the Bible in a year and you're going to do longer sections. So figure out your pathway. Figure out how I'm going to get the word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I've got to get the word into my heart. It's so unbelievably essential. Pathway, Bible, and then conversation. Um, I like to write out my prayers. I have a prayer journal. And I'll often write Jesus a letter at the beginning of the day. That works in my mind. It works in my heart. For some of you, you can. You can sit in a room quietly with your hands folded and just have a conversation with Jesus. And I think it needs to be a conversation because I want to remind you, prayer is both speaking to and listening to God. We do a lot of talking in our prayer time. Sometimes I, th I would challenge us to do as much listening time. God, what do you want to say to me? Do you want to bring a word of correction? Do you want to bring a word of encouragement? I'm going to sit here quietly and listen to what it is that you have to say. So, pathway, Bible, conversation. And then I would also say this, it's so important. Um, your quiet time with the Lord always has to have a community aspect to it. So you can share what God's doing in your life. So for Laurel and I, we have an opportunity every day when we just share. Well, hey, what, what did God say to you today? And you're able to say that, whether it's with a friend somebody, I mean, whoever it happens to be, but have someone else that you can share that journey with. Otherwise you end up in a relationship that's in isolation and often that will, it will break itself down. And so I know Jesus is enough, but Jesus put us in community. Church is a team sport. We're supposed to do it together. Okay. And I want to encourage you to get connected into a small group. Uh, we're in a small group on Thursday nights and we just, I just love the connection, the conversation and the time. It's a place where I find a lot of my quiet time stuff just bubbles out, right? Here's what God's talking to me about. What's he talking to you about? I think those conversations are really, really important. Um, and we have lots of other resources. If you'd like to come and talk afterwards, I could talk about this one for an hour because your quiet time is so vital. I mean, think about this for just a second. What other friendship, uh, would you call a friendship a friendship if you never spent any time talking or connecting with that person? I would say no. So don't say you have a friendship with Jesus if you're not willing to actually talk and connect with him. Now, here's what I know. Uh, he wants to talk and connect with you. He can't wait for you to show up. I mean, that's just his heart for all people all the time. Often the reason we don't connect is because we've got something that happened and there's shame connected to it. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. Press in and find out whether or not Jesus would love to have that conversation with you. I already know his answer. It's just like, let's talk. Let's talk. Okay, uh, one more. Let's do one more. What's the Christian view of mental illness? Is relying on God solely the answer? Or is it okay to seek therapy and other options? So I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
It's this beautiful proverb that says, the wisdom of many counselors. It's a beautiful, beneficial thing to all people. Um, so I would say the Christian view needs to be this. Um, we bring all of our issues to Jesus. He is the answer. But Jesus also wants us to understand that, that he put giftedness inside of all other people at all other times. And sometimes, sometimes I need another human being to speak in on behalf of God so that I can really honestly understand what's happening in the world that's around me. So I'm not ashamed to tell you, I see a psychologist. I'm thankful for the fact that my workplace sees that as important and they give me the time and the resources to go and spend time with Dr. Ducklow. Um, Ducky, that's my nickname for him. Um, <laughs> Ducky is a, is a small Scottish Canadian up across the line um, who has given me so much fresh perspective about God's role in my life as a pastor. The first time I, met, I went and met with him, um, I, was, I was sitting in, in the chair and he finally looked at me and he, and he goes, uh, are you okay, Grant? I'm like, I'm fine, why? He goes, uh, you want to tell your knee that you're okay? <laughs> he goes, so in the mental health world, we call that agitation. You're agitating like a dishwasher, like a washing machine, right? And he goes, here's what I need you to know. You don't need to be my pastor. I'm okay. You get to be you right now. And he goes, I've also figured something out. You're a people pleaser, aren't you? <laughs> he goes, I already like you, so that's off the table. So let's talk about Jesus and you. I believe that we bought a lie for a really, really long time. And that we don't fall under this thing, you know, well, Jesus should be enough. No, Jesus is enough. Jesus can answer all of our questions, but often he'll use other people and professionals and their gifts in order to help us see something in our life that we just can't see for ourselves. And so um, I go to therapy. If that's too messy for you, sorry. But I think it's healthy and I wanna be healthy. I mean, I wanna grow, I wanna thrive. I don't wanna be another statistic. I've lost way too many pastor friends because they weren't willing to reach out for help. So I'll try to lead by example. If you need help, I'll go first. I think you should reach out. I think you should get help from whoever it is that happens to be. And I think you need to understand that God can use them in order to speak deeply into your life. And so I think that's, I think that's huge. And I appreciate the fact that I go to a church where that's okay. You know? Because the last time I checked, I think pastors get to be people too. So um, I'm just going to tell you, my view on mental illness is uh, we have seen an incredible spike in mental illness issues here in Whatcom County, um, and we experience them sometimes here, you know, and we do our best to try and love people in the hurt and the brokenness. Um, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Uh, you know, it, when we pray that the lost and broken come to Christ the King Community Church, we should never be surprised when they do, and it shouldn't throw us off when they walk through the door. And we should have the same response. Jesus moved towards people who were hurting and struggling and we should do exactly the same thing. And so I wanna encourage all of us to do that. But I also believe that um, one of the ways you rely on God is when you use 
the professional services or the informal services of another one of his children who can really, really, who can really, really help you. Um, I'll tell you what, my biggest therapist, her name is Laurel Lynette Fishbook. She never knew she was signing up as a full-time therapist as long as a full-time wife when we started this journey a long time ago. But I believe God can use and speak truth to each of us through other brothers and sisters. But if you don't ask for help, who's going to know? So I think we need to be brave enough to reach out and ask for help. Uh, one of the things that I love about Ducky more than anything is when we finish our, when we finish our times together, He'll often finish with these words. He'll say, so let's review and recap quietly and let Jesus do a summary for us. And we sit together and we'll talk. Sometimes we just sit silently and then he prays in his quiet Scottish little lilt, which makes it seem just so much more godly. And I don't know what it is about a Scottish accent. Um, angels and Jesus speak with a Scottish accent. That's just the way it is. And, and, and he prays that blessing and then he's just like, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. And may he give you peace. And just like it's his prayer for me, that's my prayer for you. May you walk in peace today. We are out of time. Thanks for asking the questions. I certainly do appreciate that. A little bit of different kind of church today, but I love the fact that we can have a conversation. And I'm excited to be able to come back in a couple weeks and... and and do it the other way, but I love doing it this way too. So God bless you guys. You're out of here. And uh, thanks for coming this morning. Do you... <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who asked that question? Put your hand up. You're horrible. That's crazy. Um, Oh, that's the other thing. Uh, we can talk about anything, and obviously people take me up on that. Okay, do you buy your clothes yourself, or does your wife help you shop? Um, <laughs> my wife has a visual disability, so I'm not sure how that all factors into this whole thing. Um, but actually, no, Laurel and, Laurel and my daughter, McKenna, uh, they do a lot of shopping for me. Um, but this stuff, I, I picked this out all on my own. So... Um, <laughs> Awesome. Black Friday, 19 bucks. Uh, these were about 20 at, at the Gap, and I don't know where the rest of it came from. <laughs> what a way to start. Okay, next question. All right, let's keep going. Do you believe the Bible teaches once saved, always saved? Okay, so this is a question of eternal security, and you would be surprised how often this comes up, because it, it's actually a recurring theme, because I think people get very insecure about their salvation, I sinned, did I lose something? Did something get, you know, built in there? And so I would say this, uh, according to, uh, I believe it's the book of Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, it talks about a guaranteed inheritance. Um, and and the, the biblical understanding of that um, is the inheritance that guaranteed is, is it's given the picture of Caesar used to have a ring and he would implant it on a document. And if you broke the seal of that, you died unless you were the person who was actually supposed to receive that. And that's the imagery that's there. And what it, what it basically means to me is that, that once you have made that decision for Christ and you have been imprinted, that that seal can no longer 
be broken. Now, you have to balance that idea off with the fact that the book of Hebrews says that anyone who's tasted of the first fruits and then turned away is not going to be able to see the kingdom of God. So you have to answer this question from the perspective of, in my opinion, um, is there a guaranteed inheritance? Yes, there is. Is this something that, that, it, that you know, it says, you know, the scripture also says, by their fruits you will know them. So a person who honestly and legitimately comes to Christ and is transformed, once you've had that transformation, the thought of turning away from that just seems absolutely ludicrous. And so do I believe that God is going to honor that decision? Yes, but I also think that the fruit is unbelievably important. So while I'm saying yes to eternal security, I'm also not trying to make this easy for anybody. Because it drives me nuts when I see people look at salvation like a fire insurance policy. I'm going to stay out of hell. So what's the, what, what's the bottom line question here? The bottom line question is, what's the minimum I can do and keep God happy? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how quickly can I die to myself? So if you were to ask me theologically, I would say this. I believe in eternal security, but I'm going to live every day like I don't. Does that make sense? Because I believe every one of us is called. I mean, Scripture keeps talking over and over and over again about the depth of discipleship. There's a broad road. Many people find it. There's a narrow road, and it's not easy. And there's one gate, and there's only one gate. And you don't get through it because you're a good person or you recycle. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says unless a seed falls in the ground, it actually dies. So dying to yourself, becoming someone who's following Christ and is willing to pay the price of that, I would love, I would love if we never had to ask the eternal security question again because we as a church were so committed to following Christ that that wasn't even an issue for us. It's like we're all in. Bible-thumping Jesus freaks, every single one of us, without apology, living in the world but not of the world, and doing everything we can to try and point people towards the cross 100% of the time. So I'll say that again. I'm gonna li- I believe in eternal security, but I'm going to live every day like I don't. And if you want to check that out, uh, I think in Hebrews 6 and Ephesians 1 are the two places where I would go to point you theologically towards that. Great question. Thank you. Better than the closed one. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Where can I find friendship and community in the midst of my brokenness? I feel so alone. Where can I find friendship and community in the midst of my brokenness? You know, one of the tools that I see the enemy use over and over and over again is when someone has experienced a high level of brokenness, which is why we did this whole series, Broken Redefined. I see that the tools that the enemy uses are isolation and shame. And what he wants to convince you more than anything is you are alone and that you are so full of shame that you cannot connect with another group of people. That's why if you were here last week and you heard me say this, as much as we would love to convince ourselves that we are not those people, here's the cool thing. If you feel alone in your brokenness, you're not alone. That's a lie from the enemy because we're all those people. We're all those people. Scripture says there's no one righteous, not even one. So nobody in this room gets to take a higher step up. We are all equal in need of a savior. There's a level playing field at the foot of the cross. I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years or or 30 minutes. Every single one of us has been called into that. Now the question is whether we're going to buy the lie of the enemy or whether we're going to call him out to be the liar that he is. 
Because if it's a lie that in my brokenness I'm alone, what I would need to do is, is the opposite. Rick and Ann Campbell, who do such an amazing job with our after-service prayer team, they often talk about praying in the opposite spirit. So if someone comes and says, I feel very, I feel very afraid, then we will pray in the opposite spirit, which is that God would bless this person with courage, that they would step up in the right direction, that they would take a step forward. And I think we need to do exactly the same thing. When we feel alone and isolated, we need to press into community on purpose because that debunks the lie that Satan is telling us that we're all alone in this whole thing. Can I tell you something? We are all in the same club when it comes to sinners. But we'd like to invite you into a community, a community of grace, a community of the redeemed, a community of the restored, a community of the, of the not yet whole but walking in that direction, a community of those of us who are still confused by the fact that we are sinners, but Jesus keeps saying, actually, I've got a different name for you. I call you saints. We feel like we're, we're foes, enemies of God. And at one time we were, but now Jesus calls us friend. And we have to work that out in community together because all of us feel alone and isolated. So to whoever my brother or sister is in the midst of your brokenness, here's what I want you to know. God wants to redefine your brokenness. And I know it's a cliche, but whatever your mess is, it can actually become a message to those of us in this room who may be able to relate to everything that you've walked through. And maybe you've walked a journey that nobody else in the room, or you think that nobody else has, but I promise you somewhere at Christ the King Community Church, you're gonna find somebody who's walked that journey too. And we'd like to walk it together because we're not gonna buy the lie that we're in this alone. You are not alone. Welcome to the dysfunctional family of Christ the King Community Church. The bigger your mess, the more you will fit in. Your resume is okay with us because we are all sinners saved by grace. Okay, amen. Wow, somebody was there. That's good. Okay. So uh, can, can I back up just one thing on that too? I would say this too. Uh, take a step tonight and don't let one more minute go by waiting for isolation to set in. After the service every week, a group of people come up here and pray. Come and talk to another human being who can pray with you. You might find that you're not nearly as alone as you think you are. Okay, awesome. Okay, next one. Will Pastor Todd King's position be replaced by someone else? Great question. That's a good one. Someone's paying attention. Um, that's awesome. So Todd is at Mercer Creek Church in Ellensburg, Washington. He's doing great, and that's wonderful. Uh, the elders and, and uh, the leadership of our church came together. We looked at every time someone transitions, which, by the way, we've been so blessed with stability amongst our staff team for a long period of time. We're thankful for that all of the time. Um, people are always coming and going. That's just a reality of it, especially in a very competitive job market. There's lots of opportunities for people. But uh, the leadership gathered together and came up... Uh, with an interim structure. And so we decided not to replace Todd's job specifically. So right now you have a four-person team who is actually leading the CTK Bellingham campus. Those four people are actually, sorry, not just leading Bellingham, but leading the network crew together. So at a Bellingham level, 
Uh, Pastor Melanie Kemp, who's our new executive pastor, and myself. Melanie and I have been working at this together for almost 20 years, um, and, and she is a joy to work with. We are both so unbelievably committed. We wouldn't be here uh, for this long if it hadn't worked out that way. So Melanie and I are directly responsible for what goes on here at the Bellingham campus, and then you add two more people who look after, on the staff side of things, the network part of it. Then we add Derek Archer, who's our pastor of uh, the network campuses, and Shauna Walton, who works in our finance area. Those four people create something called uh, the network executive team. And so we look after that overarching part of it. So the answer to the question is no, we're not going to replace the individual role because we're in process with looking at all of those roles. We're in an interim process for right now, and then we're going to move that into a permanent uh, we'll move that into a permanent situation somewhere down the road. And the cool thing is um, uh, the elders, the staff team, and all of that are working together because the one thing we want more than anything is to make sure that we continue to impact Whatcom County for Jesus. That's our whole goal is to make Jesus famous here in Whatcom County. That doesn't come down to one person, including the guy with the microphone. That's a team effort together. And I'm sitting here right now kind of looking over and you know, I got Pastor Brian Steele over there and Lem Yusita's in the back and that, that team is working together along with the lay leadership part of our church to make sure that we are moving in the right direction and, uh, and honoring Jesus in every single thing that we do. So if you need anything from us, uh, Derek, Shauna, Melanie, and I would be happy to try and help you. And if you'd like to hear more about that, come to the ownership night tomorrow night because um, we would love to answer any questions that you have. My favorite part of ownership night is Q&A, just like this. So we'd love to answer any questions you have because um, we don't have any secrets. And that's kind of a cool thing to have too. Okay, awesome. Will we know each other in heaven? Are there any Bible verses that assure us we will personally be with our saved loved ones in heaven? Oh, nice, light, easy one. Um, I would say this. Um, the book of Hebrews says that we are surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses. If you define a witness, it's someone who has firsthand knowledge of a situation because they saw something with their own eyes. And I get asked this question a lot, especially when people are grieving because they've lost somebody. Like, you know, how, how do we interact? Will they know us? Will they not know us? Um, heaven is the fulfillment of all relationships. And I believe it's the fulfillment of all earthly relationships as well. And so when a loved one goes on before us, because they are a witness, because they've seen with their eyes, they've heard with their ears, and they understand what's going on, do I believe that there is some knowledge? I think there is, but I think the knowledge is different for us. I think the knowledge is different. I would say the knowledge is different for them because they have perfect understanding at that point. And they understand God's timing. And they understand all of the questions to their answers. And so I would say based on that definition of the term witness, that there is some knowledge of knowing each other. Um, I, I hold to the hope that one day I'm going to get to sit down with my father-in-law. Um, I got to spend hardly any time with Laurel's dad because he passed away shortly after we got married. Um, I want to spend some time with Laurel's big brother, Alan, because we only got about a year longer and then, and then Alan was gone too. Um, in, in our first couple of years of marriage, we had 10 family members uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer, we lost six of them. And it was painful. And I believe when I get there, as a fulfillment to our relationships, that we're going to be able to have 
an understanding and a relationship with each, with each other. Now, I'm also going to say this. None of those relationships will matter as much as the relationships we have with Jesus. Because that's where perfection is going to be. That's where attention is going to be. That's where worship is directed. And so, do I believe that there will be some association where we will know each other? Absolutely. Um, I have a hard time picturing in my mind... Um, that I would spend an entire lifetime in a relationship with my wife growing that here and that God would not at some level allow us to have whatever connection he feels would be most beneficial to the two of us once we get home. And I know that causes different issues because, well, what about this kind of relationship or what about that kind of relationship? Um, I think we need to trust God in this. He knows what he's doing now and he's in control I'm pretty sure he can cover that in eternity as well. And I would also say this, that, that right now, you know, the Bible says that we see through a glass darkly. We just, we can't see it. It's not clear to us. When we get to heaven, that cloud's going to be gone. And I'm going to understand why God did what he did in the timing that he did it. And in that perfect understanding, I'll also have perfect peace. And I'll also be able to have perfect relationship with all of those people. So I would encourage you. Um, I actually hear pain in that question because anyone that asks that question, it normally means you've lost somebody. And I would say this, uh, God knows your loss. He knows your hurt. And just like he restored Jesus back into the fullness of his relationship between father and son, I believe he will reconcile us all as a family and restore us as a family, and we'll get to spend all of eternity not just talking with each other, but focusing on Jesus because he's, he's the end goal of eternity, not just our human family. So educated opinion, and you can take it for what it's worth. We could go a thousand different directions with that question. That's my opinion, humbly submitted, okay? All right, let's go to the next one. What would you like us to know about being a pastor, the good and the bad? Oh, wow. Uh, the bad part of being a pastor is that you get to participate in a lot of loss. So I, I, had, I had several families who lost people this week and I was able to be a part of their grief. And that doesn't just wash off of you at the end of the day. There's a cumulative effect to loss and grief and mourning. And when you see people hurt a lot, it sticks with you over time. And sometimes that's a hard thing to handle. Um, when, when my wife married me, she never knew she was also getting a full-time job as a therapist. Um, but I'm thankful for somebody that I can go home to and say, this one really hurt or this one stung. Um, I think you experience loss as a pastor too when people decide to move on. And that's hard. Sometimes they move on because they're moving. Sometimes they move on because for whatever reason, it's not working for them anymore. And you have those uncomfortable conversations where you, you don't have any other choice but to say, well, God bless you. Be warm and well fed. I, I hope you find whatever it is that you're looking for. And I can't speak for anybody else, but when that kind of stuff happens, uh, it's hard not to take it personally. Because as I've said before here, you know, one of my Achilles heels is I'm a people pleaser. And so I want to make everybody feel like this is God's place for them. But sometimes that's just not the story that's being told. So I would say that the hard part 
the tough part about being a pastor. You experience a lot of loss over the years. Um, I could go on about the good parts forever. I love my job. I do. I love being a shepherd. I love the privilege it is to be invited into a family's home when they're getting ready to say goodbye to a loved one. To me, that's a sacred trust. Um, I love watching stories of life change every single day. I mean, what, what better job perk is there than seeing people come to Jesus and watching life transformation happen? And one of the cool things about my perspective is I get to watch life change happen way before anybody ever does this or does this. Um, I watch sometimes people sit here for weeks on end fighting with Jesus through the whole message. And I just think, how cool is it that I get a front row seat watching someone have this life and death eternal struggle right in front of me? Um, I don't get any joy watching the struggle, but I get some joy watching the struggle because I have yet to see anyone win other than Jesus. The hound of heaven. God loves you. God is for you. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. And to be able to preach that and share that. So that's a good part. Um, it's good to watch people uh, grab a hold of their spiritual gift and actually use them. Um, I, I don't know if you ever watch me on baptism nights, but I'm like a giddy little kid over here watching people. I mean, I just love watching that old nature get drowned. It just makes me, I'm just, I'm thrilled every single time. It never gets old. Um, one of the best parts of being a pastor is working with the team that I get to work with here at Christ the King Church. Just an exceptional group of people who work so unbelievably hard. Do we get it right every time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Do we get it wrong? Absolutely we do. But to work together as comrades in arms and to do that um, is fantastic. One of the other cool things is, you know, I've been in this community for a long time, since uh, 1999 when we moved here. So that's like 20 years. Actually, no, sorry. It was before that. We were 95 when we were already in Nooksack. I lose track of time. So it's been since 95. So this is home now. And uh, when you've been in a community for a long period of time, uh, you kind of get to pastor not just a church, but a community. Um, and I am honored to share that with, uh, with guys like Bob Marvel, with guys like Paul Peterson, with guys like Rick Qualls. Um, what an honor and privilege it is to work with these heroes. These guys are my heroes, heroes of the faith, and to be able to, to talk about Jesus everywhere that we get to go and with everything that we do. And so I could talk about the good all night long. There are challenges that come with it, but you guys have challenges in your calling as well. So it's no different, but I appreciate your faithfulness and your love over the years. I'll tell you what, it's been kind of a crazy ride. Kind of a crazy ride. Okay, let's go to the next one. If the Bible were written today, do you think it would address different topics and stories like racism, sexuality, etc.? No, because I think it does deal with stories like racism, sexuality, and everything else. I mean, if you want, if you want to talk about systemic racism, you just, you just look at the history of the Israelites. It's there. You want to talk about sexuality, broken sexuality, whole sexuality, it's all in there from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. I mean, when I, when I unpack these ideas of, um, we actually talk about sexuality here fairly regularly. Uh, and I think we could agree that culture's done a good job of trying to break something that God intended to be beautiful. And so 
when we look at scripture and how it talks about um, faithfulness and monogamy and commitment and covenant and love and self-sacrifice and dying to yourself, to me, that is so much more relevant today than it's ever been before. Because, I mean, if I could plead with, with people that are, that are walking towards those kinds of relationships, it would be, here's what you need to survive and thrive. You need monogamy and faithfulness and commitment and covenant. It's the only thing that's going to get you through. Um, when it comes to when it comes to racism, I mean, Scripture tells us very, very clearly that that Jesus came for all nations. Let me underscore the word all nations. Every man, woman, boy, and child, every color that there is, God came for all of that. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be all nations. Together, every tribe, every tongue, all together, worshiping Jesus in a way that only he can truly understand. So to me, I don't think the Bible would be any different because to me it addresses everything that needs to be addressed right now. I, I would go on record as saying this. I think the Bible is more relevant today than it's ever been before. That's why it's the only book we use here. Okay. It's the only source text that we have. Are there parts of it that make us very uncomfortable? Absolutely. There's parts of it that make me uncomfortable. And it's probably not the parts that you think about because it's not the current common issues that make me squirm. It's the, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to die parts. Because as a human being, I don't like dying to myself. I like myself. I like myself on my throne calling my shots. And Jesus shows up and says, that's not the way this works. You either die to yourself and live for me. You can't have it both ways. And so what I think the Bible would be different, no. And I would encourage you to search the scriptures. It's all in there. Genocide, murder, rape, uh, you name it. Every dark piece is in there. The, the Bible can actually be fairly dark in places. But I would encourage you to look at the whole counsel of God, because wherever there is darkness, there's also light. Wherever there's pain, there's also hope. Wherever there is sacrifice, there's also surrender. And God calls us to hold both of those in tension all of the time. So if you haven't found these topics there, I'd encourage you to dig a little bit deeper because every single one of them is already there. Plus the answers and the way to fix it is also in there too. That's why I love my Bible so much, okay? All right, what time we got? 6.55 already? Oh, good grief. Okay. I work with someone who's transgender and wants to be called by a certain pronoun. I want to be respectful but firm, stand firm in my convictions. How should I handle this? All right. I would say this. Um, this seems to come up every single time. When Jesus was confronted with difficult, complex issues, he had a two-pronged approach always, grace and truth. It was both. And he held them both in perfect tension. None of us is as good as Jesus. I think we can all agree with that, right? None of us is as good as handling that. But I believe the same principle applies. So my question is this. First of all, can you make your coworker a friend and actually be enough of a part of their life so they would want to listen to both grace and truth from you. You cannot communicate grace and truth from the sidelines. It doesn't work that way. 
It just makes you look like a critic. So I always tell people, when you're in, a, in an uncomfortable situation, press in. That's what Jesus did with us and our sin. He actually got closer. He moved closer. And he never lost sight of our humanity. That's the grace part. Never lose sight of the humanity of that person. Somewhere in there, the thumbprint of God is on their soul. They were created in the image of God. So you have to look at whatever they do with that image or whatever they're doing with that image. It doesn't negate the fact that, that God stamped them just like he stamped you. So we press in. We look for the thumbprint as best we can. And then we try to create enough of a relational connection so that we can actually respectfully do both grace and truth. So here's my conviction when it comes to, when it comes to trans, the transgender issue. Um, my Bible says in the first three chapters of Genesis that he made them, God made them male and female. And I can't cut those verses out of my Bible. I don't want to cut those verses out of my Bible. So that's very clear that God in his sovereignty establishes a maleness or a femaleness and then he gives it to you as a gift. Okay? I also believe in Psalm 139, it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't believe God makes mistakes with assignments. I believe God knows what is absolutely the best for each one of you. So when he hands that, that, that gender to you, he's giving you that is a sacred trust. Our world has created a set of question marks around that. But it's okay to still have question marks. It's okay for us to be able to submit to someone both grace and truth in that. So I have a conviction that gender assignment is a gift from God and that God makes people male and female and that God doesn't make mistakes. As I'm walking alongside of someone who may have brought a question mark into their own world and said, I don't know what direction I want to go, my goal is to be able to get close enough to their soul so they can hear both grace and truth. Now, in no way, shape, or form should that ever be an excuse to not love somebody or treat them with respect. Because the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you might believe that is a sinful decision, but the way you step into that person's life is to get close enough, and this makes some of us uncomfortable, we step close enough to be able to share grace and truth in a respectful way, understanding that to me, as a follower of Jesus, the opinion of Jesus matters more than what anybody else thinks about me or my convictions. And sometimes I have to stand in an unpopular position when it comes to culture knowing this. I would rather be a fool in the eyes of a man than a fool in the eyes of God. Jesus found a way to love and lovingly and respectfully still say, this is God's conviction and I'm going to hold it up and I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ but I'm gonna hold that conviction with both grace and truth and I'm going to pray like crazy that they see Jesus in me in a way that will help reinforce God's convictions and not the convictions of culture, okay? It was my best shot, okay? All right, uh, one more, one more, maybe, okay. I'm ready to be saved. What does my baptism mean to Jesus? 
So I would say this, that the two of them are not synonymous. We got to make sure that we understand that, right? So we come in a moment of faith to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was who he said he was and that he was raised from the dead, uh, that you will be saved, that it's out of the confession of your mouth. That's how it goes. So we are saved first. That's between us and God directly. And then there's a public declaration in baptism where we go public and say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of anything that he's done for me. He was not ashamed of me. I'm not ashamed of him. So I'm going to go public and declare my faith. So salvation happens first. Baptism is the public declaration. Do they matter? Yes, Absolutely. Do both of them need to be done? Yes, because they're a matter of obedience. Both of them are a matter of obedience, but they're not synonymous. Getting baptized does not save you, okay? That's not what baptism is. Salvation is the confession of your heart, and then you begin the process of what we call sanctification, where I become more and more like Jesus as days go along. But then there's another point in time when I am not ashamed, and so I decide I'm going to go public with this declaration. And what you're doing is simple. Some of you are probably wondering, well, like, what's the conversation that's always happening over here? Like, you guys are talking to each other. Like, why not get in the tank? Like, let's go. Come on, move on. Um, what we're saying is this. Do you love Jesus Christ with everything inside of you? And when the person says, yes, I do, then we say, upon your profession of faith, because of your declaration of salvation, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then as they go under the water, they're identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. That old man is buried. That's what salvation did. And then they're brought up out of the water, which symbolizes the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And then we all hoot and holler and take pictures and cheer because that is life transformation. So if you're ready to be saved, I'll be right down here afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to have that moment to have, I remember when I came to faith in Christ, everything changed for me. Now, I walked an interesting path as it went along. I've shared that story here lots of times. But if you're ready to be saved, be saved, and then we'll help you get prepared for that moment when you baptize, are baptized and, and declare your faith in front of your friends, your family, and everybody else that's here. Okay? All right? Two things. All right? Let's do one more. It's 7.02. You guys don't have anywhere better to go. It's Saturday night, right? Let's do one more. Let's just do one more. Okay? Who are the elders of the church and what is their role? Fantastic. Oh, that's great. Okay. So elders are overseers. They are overseers. In our particular context, our elders provide spiritual oversight for the direction and the movement of the church. Their job is essentially spiritual in nature. So they are here to, they're here to guard the flock. Um, if I ever said anything that was not biblical you need to know the elders of this church would be all over my back, and rightfully so. So they protect against doctrinal error. They also um, help to make sure that, that the work that we are doing is in alignment with the mission, vision, and values that God has given us as a church. So they are truly overseers. Um, they're also my boss, Okay, so just so you know, they're my boss and I answer to someone because we believe accountability is really, really, really important in our church family. 
Um, I don't think anybody should be able to call their own shots. I don't think it's healthy. In our particular context, all of our elders are actually, um, they're lay people. Okay, so they're outside of our organization, but they call this church home. They're invested here. They love what's going on and they provide a sense of accountability, a sense of stability. And they also provide um, uh, what I would call their organizational breaks. There's times when they tap the, the, they, they the, um, the brakes and just say, okay, hold on, slow down. Where did that come from? Hell, let's find out whether or not God is actually driving that idea. Is that a good thing or is it a God thing? They are wise counsel. So when I don't know what else to do, I will go to the elders or one of the elders and I'll say, look, here, here's the situation that we're in. What wisdom do you have for me so that we go in the right direction as opposed to just going off? I mean, there's always a way that we think is right, right? But there's a verse in scripture, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, okay? So we need people who can speak into us. And the other big part of it is prayer. So uh, Monday afternoons at four o'clock, if you, need to, if you want to find me, I'll be at the, I'll be at the, the, the woods over there by, by Walmart. And I'll be sitting in a corner uh, with a guy with a red hat on. His name is Cliff. Cliff is one of our elders. And we meet together on Mondays to pray. And he prays for my heart and I pray for his. And we talk about church stuff. We talk about personal stuff. We talk about family stuff. And so the elders are all of that, but essentially they operate in the world of oversight to make sure that there's the proper accountability, that we stay biblically accurate, that we don't ever veer off the path that God has for me, and that we try to fulfill the mission that God has given us as a church. Our mission is to create an authentic Christian community that reaches out to unchurched people in love, acceptance, and forgiveness so they can experience the joy of salvation and a purposeful life of discipleship. That's been our mission for a long time and it continues to be my mission. I hope you will participate in that mission um, because the last time I checked, Whatcom County still needs Jesus. And there is no plan B. We're plan A. So I think we better get busy. All right, we are at 7.06, it's time to close. Let's pray together and then we will take off out of here. Thank you for your questions, I certainly do appreciate them. Father God, thank you for an evening when we could come and have a conversation back and forth. God, thank you for uh, the hope that you bring to each and every one of us today. God, for every person behind every question, I pray that they would know they have the full attention of the God of the universe. Lord, may they know that you are close, that you are near, that you are here. So God, may they move towards you and not away. Lord, as we, as we live in this world, we're challenged. We're challenged to be in the world, but not of the world. So God, help us to negotiate different and difficult cultural norms. Lord, may we always be consumed with loving Jesus and pointing people towards Jesus. 100% of the time, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face -face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at ctk.church.